Hello and welcome to the Commonweal Policy Podcast. I'm Dr. Craig DL, I'm the Head of Policy and Research at Commonweal and I have decided to give Jonathan Shafi the, the week off uh, this week because we have a very special guest on the podcast this week. Uh, so welcome to Ellen Hoover, a campaigner, activist, artivist sometimes, um, almost a regular guest on the podcast. You've been on before talking about local democracy, about voting rights and about the the rights of New Scots, but this week you're here to talk about land reform. Hiya. <laughs> so, yes, this uh, came out of the Scottish Land Commission's report that was published last week, and both of us ended up writing articles for Source um, last week on various aspects of what this report meant for land reform in Scotland. So, Ellen, do you want to just talk about what, what you wrote about and why you thought it was important? Right, so I'd been thinking about land reform, obviously not being a, a native-born Scot. Uh, it's always interesting to see how people get interested in different areas of policy in Scotland or in the new places that they choose to live. And for me, land reform was kind of a draw because I like to look at, I've, I've stayed in a couple of places around the world, and especially this part of the world, Um and if you look at a society that you're joining, then it's important to know what the areas of inequality are. Mm-hmm. Um, and from that point of view, Scotland has basically has no more unequal area of society and policy than land reform or lack of land reform. So I approached land reform in the report, the strategic plan uh, that was published by the Land Commission from the angle of equality and wanted to see what is happening with that. Um, It's led to some interesting starting points, if not necessarily yet insights, um, but at least we can see where the insights might be hiding and why we can't pick up on them. Yeah, so um, just carry on, talk about what what, uh, what particular you you found in that report and what what do you talk about in the source article? We will link to the articles and uh, the Commission's report in the description below the podcast. So my article centred around looking at female land ownership in Scotland. We know that Scotland is uh, in large part owned by private owners and companies that own them. I think the famous statistic is 450 individuals own half of Scotland. 432 and um deeply disappointed at somebody as numbers minded as you <laughs> know the exact number. No, that was the most recent number, so roughly four hundred and fifty four hundred. Yeah. Um so I uh there are very few and they own half of Scottish private owned land. Um and I approached the secretary, Rosanna Cunningham uh, who's since the cabinet reshuffle uh, or around about that time has has started to be the secretary for land reform. Yep. Um, the minister for land reform continues to be Fergus Ewing, as far as I'm aware. Um, but let's see how how we go with that. Um, land reform's obviously been difficult in Scotland for a while, especially because the Scottish Parliament has held the powers to do something about the uneven, unequal distribution of land in Scotland ever since the Scottish Parliament was established, but has chosen not to through the various administrations, including this one. Um, and so I wanted to look at land reform from the angle of female land ownership because there's quite a lot we need to do with our approach to how we use land, 
in the in the next years, especially when it comes to meeting climate challenges and mm. the climate catastrophe. Um, and it turns out that there is not only no specific policy and and approach to increasing female land ownership, because no matter what we know, um, the likelihood is that in an area as unequal as land ownership, other areas will not suddenly magically be um, average or equal. Um, yeah. Equalities quite like each other's company, so uh, it, it was a fairly fair guess. But I contacted the office of Rosanna Cunningham and asked do you have the most recent figures for me on female land ownership in Scotland? And So was that how many women own estates in Scotland or what percentage of land in Scotland is owned by Both of those. I, I'm just, I wanted to know what the figures are, how much of the overall land mass or land area of, of Scotland is owned by women is one question. How many women... Um, on what percentage of land is, is slightly different. It's also about looking at um, the the boards of private companies that own land in Scotland. Are they gender equal? Because there's an interesting gender act or a gender-related act um, where public boards are meant to become gender balanced by 2022. Um, it's a very spongy sort of law that has been passed or a requirement that is, is being set up. Um, maybe I'll, I'll give you a, a short summary of that. Essentially, if you have a board of six, like, for example, the Land Commission has, the goal is that out of the two female and four male members by 2022, that is supposed to be gender balance on the whole board. Yeah. But they can establish that by just dropping one of the men from the board because it's... Uh, if it's an uneven number, you can round down. So uh, nothing significant would have changed about the actual balance on that board. And we'll maybe talk about this a bit more when we talk about the, the Commission's actual plan. But if the, 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 the board isn't due to be balanced until 2022, but they've already published a strategic plan, then does that actually change much of the policies of the, the Commission? I don't think so. I mean, there, there has been an approach to dealing with land reform and looking at f female issues in um, agricultural communities but even the specific task force that was set up to deal with this in I believe 2017 um, in their report didn't mention female land ownership in its own right it talks a lot about agricultural workers there's an, a number an increase in the number of female agricultural workers but then it points out okay these are seasonal usually picking workers, fruit picking or, or mm. produce picking workers. Um, that doesn't refer to landowners. And you can, you know, even if you discount for the fact of gender, uh, a landowner versus somebody who picks seasonal fruit is a very different relationship to the land and to the empowerment experience. Yeah, land. and even, even the difference between a landowner and, say, a tenant farmer. Yes. Um, at this point, if we had the data on... Um, female land ownership in Scotland. I would ask you how do how does Scotland compare to countries internationally? But well, that was kind know. of the plan behind asking the uh, was Anna Cunningham's office. Um, interestingly, the reply that I received is, "I'm sorry, we cannot share this information with you because there's currently no lawful requirement for this data to be um, raised." 
a point of sale or in any other official interaction and therefore we do not know how many women actually own any land in Scotland. And it kind of knocked me for six because for the first minister, Nicola Sturgeon is, is currently in the running for, to becoming the longest standing first minister in the history of the Scottish Parliament. And when she entered her office as first minister, in her acceptance speech, there was no other topic more important to her than equality. So if you, Scotland in the time of this administration and of her leadership has made big strides when it comes to gender equality in, in a lot of different areas, but tellingly not in one of the most unequal areas of Scottish society, which is land ownership, and with no specific focus for even just gender balance, forget about, you know, different diversity hmm. backgrounds and so on and so forth. So, well, if we don't have the data, we can't compare internationally, but do, do you have any information on how other countries compare at all? Uh, actually, it's interesting. This is a obviously a, a gap in knowledge, and it's it's not unique to Scotland. Um, but it's interesting that we have more data about countries that aren't as developed as we like to think of ourselves. Hmm. Um, so there's pretty decent data on several African countries, for example, for South African countries, uh, South American countries as well, and. What the data there suggests, and we, we can't be sure if this is the same in Scotland, but it seems to be pretty overwhelming evidence in multiple parts of this world, um, is that women own significantly smaller plots of land and that they get much less profit from it. Um, it the number that seems to be floating around is about a, a quarter of what men earn from the same um, area of land that they hold. We don't have enough data on what the quality of that land is. Mm. And there's multiple factors that we can't consider as long as we don't have the data. But one of the interesting insights there could be that um, international organizations then say, oh, okay, we need to bring the women up to par with men and enable them to conduct the sort of agriculture that gives higher profits. But if we look at the actual climate disaster that we're facing, we know that agriculture has to go through massive changes, that the trend for that sort of, for the ability to feed ourselves, to make communities resilient, to deal with climate change and the change in, in how and where things can be grown, it needs to downsize. It doesn't need to become bigger. Um, there needs to be a different model for agricultural production and land management and many would suggest that this has more to do with having smaller farms um, having community-based farms and interestingly for me the data on women land ownership and and the profits that they make off that land kind of point exactly in that direction okay women don't you know they don't necessarily they might not need big loans to buy a massive tractor and other agricultural equipment they might not need additional money or donations of fertilizer because they might not be in the business of exporting what used to be fertile soil and the ability for a country to produce its own food, which results in resilience, for profit to go abroad, mm. which is a very male model. What women seem to be doing is having smaller farms that tend to be managed without um, artificial fertilizers, and they seem to be based in the community, feeding the communities. So instead of looking at how we can 
bring women up to par, we might have to look at how can we replicate what women do and support that model way better than we do currently. This was actually a topic that played very heavily in um, our Green New Deal plans. We've got a chapter on uh, the things that we have to start talking about when we talk about agricultural reform and land reform. And it's an area, again, that there just isn't a lot of data. It's very difficult to find out the data on, for example, the carbon footprint of Scotland's agricultural sector. So if we want to become a carbon neutral country, then that's something we need to know. And it's something that we then need to take the steps to address, but we don't we don't have that basic data to start forming the policies in that way. Um, of course, a Green New Deal does go far beyond just sheer carbon footprint. And some of the ideas you spoke about there, about, about making your, your, your supply chain shorter, focusing on local community and local wealth building, yes. rather than exporting your profits. Um, looking at agro- agroecology, trying to preserve your soils, trying to preserve the nutrients there. Um, these are all important things, and you're right, if, if the focus is just on GDP growth and export growth, then you miss a lot. I think it's specifically concerning for Scotland, because as you said, if, if the board in its current form isn't even looking at doing anything about female land ownership, including not even raising the figures in order to inform our decision making on the topic, then by 2023, the, the time this plan plans until two. Um, nothing's going to change and we're a, a long way further down the road of a, a sort of land reform that might be, you know, unbalanced kind of and, and non-constructive. And yeah. I mean, the equality aspect is by far not the, the only thing that is wrong with the Scottish government's approach to land reform and, and where we're heading at the minute. I'm not saying that um, and that seems to be the criticism that this article has drawn. Oh, we just need land reform in general. But my point is the insights that we can gain from the data that we don't have, the fact that we're not paying attention to it, it shows us very directly that we're ignoring at least half of the population and their needs and the insights that could be gained from their abilities. If we need to focus our food production again around community, around resilience, around shorter food miles, around having there what we need there and being more seasonal, it's time to talk to women. <laughs> um, so one of the other criticisms I saw that your, your approach attracted was uh, the idea that this is something that, that needs to wait till after independence. And we've seen that from not just folk on, on the, the, the Twitter sphere and, and social media, but we've seen it echoed by government ministers as well. Yeah, I think you're referring there to an article that, was it Mike Russell wrote? Yep. Oh, I have a really special relationship to Mike Russell already, so I'm sure he, he'd not be surprised to hear me call out his article for what I think it is, which is really a, a lazy excuse because the entire article seemed to contain absolutely no substantial reason why Scotland can only do this after independence. His point was that only a government in an independent Scotland would have the vision and the... What was it? The ambition, was the, it? The vision and the determination, yeah. I believe, to, to make land reform happen. And I read the entire article. It mentioned Leslie Riddick's book on huts um, as well. And I tried to scan it for any substantial information that would, that would give us a valid reason. 
at the end of the article, I closed my my window uh, on the on the laptop and thought. So basically, what he's saying is that this administration didn't have the vision nor the determination to make it happen, but there was no other reason for it. And yet, this is something that is brought up the Scottish government. You mentioned before the first minister has talked about equality. Um, the SNP is generally thought of a thought of as a party that promotes land reform, especially among its membership. Although, as as you've also said, uh, the the scope of the actual reforms that have come out so far have been rather lacking. Yes. I mean, um, the, the SNP is obviously struggling with internal democratic, or lack of democratic structure and adherence anyway. Um, and far be it from me to determine party policy, but apparently far be it also from members of the SNP to determine policy. I think the reason that land reform is so far behind in being tackled despite, as you say, it being a key policy that the SNP was more or less founded around. It was part of their foundation policies. The inequality in society in Scotland is nowhere more obvious than it is in land and the lack of equality in land ownership in Scotland. Yeah, and this was uh, this slow pace of of change was the the point I tried to make in my own article where (coughs) I... I looked at some of the things that the Commission was bringing out, like the possibility of setting up a review of alternative governance models of land, including making more use of common good land. And this review is going to take a couple of years to take place. Now, Andy Whiteman wrote, you know, actually wrote the book on the state of common good land in Scotland back in 2003. This is not a new issue. We know about how common good land works. We know about how cooperative ownership works. The, the, those models are already well established in use in various places. Um, we know how community buyouts work. Um, I was looking at the Commission and, and looking at these series of reviews that, as you say, take us up to 2023. And I recognise that if the Scottish Government isn't going to do anything until all those reviews are in and it has digested and responded to all those views. How long will that take? Well, the last major land reform review was the Werity report that was published almost a year ago now and we're still waiting for a response to that. So if we add a year to the Scottish Government to give them a chance to to create a response and then maybe another year because that's how long it takes to pass legislation in the Scottish Parliament we might not be looking at substantial land reform, not just before the end of this current parliament, but before the end of the next parliament. And that's assuming, that's assuming the, the, the present administration continues in much the same form. There's not a change of, change of government. And if there's not a change of government in the next election either, which could potentially throw all those plans out the window. So we're looking at something that we need to do rapidly because we have less than 25 years left to do a 25-year Green New Deal plan. But if we're going to waste five years just reviewing things, then how how long is it going to be before we start making substantial change? Yeah. Um, Why do you think that land reform is not being tackled by the Scottish Government as it should by its own party? Ultimately, I think this is a, a lobbying issue. We know that the land lobby is a very powerful force in Scotland. You talk about less than 450 people 
owning half of Scotland, they have a lot more power than 450 votes worth, if you look at it that way. Um, there's always going to be a, a certain amount of fear when it comes to large, large-scale reform. Um, it's a scary task as a government to overhaul the way a country is governed, but this is what governments are supposed to do, and these changes can happen. Um, as, as you mentioned, the, the, that quote from Mike Russell, it does take a government with the, the ambition and the determination to do it. So maybe that's what we need. Uh, we do have an election coming up next year. Um, I'm not going to start promoting one party or another, but whichever party does go into that with a manifesto of radical and determined change is the party that will attract the votes of people who really care about land reform. I mean, the thing is, people like to pretend that they don't care about land reform, but that's because Scotland doesn't seem to understand that the inequality in ownership of of the land area of Scotland leads to the inequality we're still seeing in society. We're perpetuating inequality by not reforming. And the land reform itself has the potential to raise huge amounts of money for the community, mm-hmm. as opposed to the current model where community buyouts are expected to often buy back land from private landowners who have been gifted common land that used to belong to the people of Scotland, then make use of that land for 300, 400 years, however long they've owned it. And then the community is meant to buy it back instead of getting remunerated for Mm. the fact somebody took their land, made a profit off it, and now wants to sell it to them. And not only do we do that, we they have to pay not a reasonable price. They have to pay millions of pounds in order to get back what was once community land in the first place. That, to me, is insane. I think if we take the time to explain this to anybody... It will be understandable pretty immediately why land reform is central to where we are and where we can go and why it doesn't take independence to finally do something about it. Yeah, and the thing is, when when you're talking about land reform, you often think of it in terms of large rural estates. But this isn't just a rural issue. This is this is an urban issue as well. It's something that Andy Whiteman in his book, um, The Poor Had No Lawyers, um, which we're both reading at the moment, um, discussed, um, but it's something that Commonweal's published on before. Back in 2017, we published a, a map of derelict and uh, unused land in northeast Glasgow and talked about how it could be opened up to communities and communities could get access to that and, and start using it um, to, to, again, enrich their communities or use it differently in a way that the, the market is currently failing them because the market has decreed that there is more value in keeping a hold of it than actually using it. It's a crazy system and it really does need to be looked at. Um, I don't also enjoy the whole weighing up of arguments of urgency. Uh, you know, we can't do land reform until independence, but also until we have land reform, we can't really look at the women's issue. Oh, and until we have looked at women, we can't really look at diversity. You know, it's 
it's one cop out after the other. These are not competing, but they are relating causes yes. that need to be tackled in unison and not in stages. Yes, stages is, have brought us nowhere. This is one of the big lessons I've certainly come into learning um, from from working with Commonweal, is that you can't just adjust one policy lever at a time. They all move together. They all move because of each other. If you want to fix everything, then you have to change everything. Um, so, Ellen, just as we round up the the, the end of the podcast, uh, what are you working on next? Oh God, I'm working on quite a, a lot of different things at the minute. Um, I'm going to continue to look at women and land reform and equality. Um, I think it's an important enough topic that seems to have been overlooked for too long. Um, I'm also interested in looking at the workforce required for a Green New Deal. Um, I think it's another one of those areas where it seems to be completely overlooked that if we're all on the same schedule for having to transform all of our economies, all of the global economies around the world it, at the same time within the next, what, 10 years, mm. um, then all of us have not enough workers that are trained in, in the areas that we require, even if it's not, not particularly modern or new professions, there's not enough plumbers, there's not enough like heating insulation experts and so on and so forth in any of the countries. So for me, the interest is in looking at how do we design a workforce and a mutual uh, training and, and educational program that goes across the borders of Scotland and brings anybody who is trying to make a genuine effort towards a Green New Deal into the fold of progress fast as a, as a, you know, as people of the world and not just as individuals. Well, we'll certainly look out for that. We'll get you back on the show uh, to, to talk about that when it's ready. And just for everyone listening, um, as always, uh, just like to say that Commonweal as an organisation, we are funded entirely by folk like yourself, giving us a fiver or a tenner a month. Um, so I know things are difficult with uh, everything that's going on in the world, but if any of you are in a position to support the show, to support Commonweal, to support the work that we're doing, then there is a donate button in the description. And for everyone else, I hope you've enjoyed the show. I hope you continue to listen and to share and to talk about it among your friends. And we will be back next week. <laughs>